Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Marilyn Greenwald, co-author of a new book, Eunice Hunter Carter, A Lifelong Fight for Justice, published by the Fordham University Press. Eunice Carter was the first black female attorney in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and the only black and woman on the prosecution team that convicted notorious mobster Lucky Luciano back in 1936. We're joined for today's conversation by Judge Gail Williams Byers, the first black judge in the South Euclid Municipal Court here in Ohio. Marilyn, you, your latest biography is about Eunice Hutton Carter. Uh, this woman had a special life, but talk to us a little bit. Summarize it. Give us some high points, please. Okay. Um, well, I, I say her claim to fame, although she never really was famous, but one of the reasons she got a New York Times obituary was because she was um, on the team in 1936 that prosecuted Lucky Luciano and the mob, and she was the only black person and the only woman. So this is, you know, kind of her claim to fame, fame in quotes. But doing the biography, we found out, first of all, that she did so much more. And she came from this family that was incredible. Um, the things they did for social justice causes and just the life, the lives they lived. So it's far more than just kind of the sentence of what um, Eunice did. You know, it's her family and other other things that she did. How did you stumble across her? Has she long been somebody that you've looked at historically and, and wanted to write more about, or how did she come to your attention? Well, this is what's kind of interesting and funny. Um, I And I'll try to condense this, but I was in Las Vegas for my um, niece's wedding, and we had about six, seven hours to kill, you know, between events. And that day had a that day's New York Times in the travel section said something like, oh, if you're in Las Vegas, go to the Mob Museum. It's it's great. And you're thinking that's probably a cheesy thing, you know, <laughs> the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. But they gave it this great write-up. And so my family and I, with we know it's just downtown. It's a, you know, 20-minute drive. Let's go there. And we did. Well, first of all, it's great. It, it leaves like five hours if you go there. It's wonderful. But the point is they had a room with the Mob in the 30s with Tom Dewey and Lucky Luciano. And they had on the wall. All te- uh, black and white photos of the team, the mob busting, nasty team of lawyers that got Lucky Luciano. And you can imagine it was white guy, white guy, white guy, white guy. And then there was this black woman who actually kind of had a kind face. She did not look mean. And she was the only black person, the only woman. And I turned to my husband and I said, you know, there's a story behind that, you know, in the 30s. But I was working on something else and I kind of made a mental note, go back to this And three years later, I did some initial research. And, you know, a lot of times this doesn't work out. It's like, well, I don't think this is going to make a whole book, but okay. And it did. So so it was just going to the Mod Museum and just seeing this. And and she just kind of stood out. Was it just sort of an an added benefit that you uh, discovered her family? Uh, You really focused on her and then expanded it? 
Yes. In fact, I was working with um, a grad student at the time who's now my co-author and we were talking about it and, uh, you know, we, and I said, you know, she's very interesting. I think she'd make a magazine article. I don't think there's enough for a book. She doesn't have papers, you know, per se, um, interesting, but mm, I just think it's not going to happen. Well, but she, my, my research assistant started doing a little research. Um, and she, we, we, kind of stumble upon her family. And we looked at each other like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. You know, what her family did. So that's really what, what triggered it. Just hitting the high points, her, her uh, grandfather was a slave who purchased his own freedom and went to Canada. But then her her parents were, were both activists. Her mother actually uh, went to Africa, correct, uh, on, on a mission? Well, actually, yes, that's that's true, and I didn't mean to interrupt you. But but before that, she went to France during World War One to aid the black soldiers there, and wrote a book about it. Um, but she also did do do some some social justice work in, in Africa. You're you're right. So, what surprised you about this woman? Other than she was black, she was a woman, she was a lawyer in the twenties and thirties. You know, I I think sometimes, you know, I was reading about her and just to, to succeed in an environment where, you know, mostly you're the only woman, mostly you're the only person of color. And she just burrowed in, you know, she, she it seems to me that she didn't let things bother her per se. Um, she, her, her parents were important to her because they instilled in her this perseverance. And sometimes, you know, when I'm writing about somebody, I, I kind of put myself in their position and I think, oh, I would have never continued after that. Oh, I would have just quit after that. No, no, no way. And, um, you know, she just, she just continued. She did it. She was not just smart intellectually, you know, you have to be pretty clever and you have to know people and how to work with people to succeed the way she did. It's not just, oh, she was just a brilliant person, which she was. It it went way beyond that. How did she decide to become an attorney back when, one, there were very few uh, attorneys of color, and two, uh, very few women attorneys, probably even fewer women attorneys? Right. She got two degrees. She went to Smith College, and of course, you know, graduated in in the 20s and there, there were very few black people at Smith College and she had an interest in government and political science she got up two degrees a master's degree there too and she went into social work for a couple years but I think she always had this kind of government slash political interest her master's thesis was she she kind of completely redid the structure of a local government i i saw her thesis she takes a local government and kind of redoes the whole structure of it to make it more efficient can you imagine somebody doing this and no i can't i mean i saw this thesis you know because smith college had it um and so I think the combination of being a little frustrated with social work, you know, she had this interest in, in, in politics and government. I think she just made that decision to go to law school, which she, she went to law school while she worked. She went to Fordham and she went at night. So, you know, this was somebody working full time. And, and by this time, I'm trying to think, I think she was definitely married. And I think she, she had uh, a son by this time. So just going. You're absolutely night. correct, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so, you know, can you imagine that? Um, but she no. did it, you know, so um, that's, you know, I think it was that those, that combination of interests that, that, you know, she, she um, decided to go to law school. Judge Gale, jump in here. I, I would love to. I want to, first of all, say thank you so much for all the hard work that you've done to highlight um, the magnificence of um, Eunice Carter, because, um, when I read the work that you've done um, to to showcase her contribution to society in general, um, what I began to learn that in the spirit of Black history um, and the spirit of, of what we celebrate, particularly this month, um, it happens that um, there's now a greater movement to start to highlight and to show the work of um Black historians that are little known. And believe it or not, she's one of them. 
And so some of the things that you brought to bear, absolutely um, so important and so amazing. What I learned about her, and I think that you write about as well, is the fact that, you know, she's a lot of firsts. She was probably one of the first and only at um, Smith College because there were not a lot of women, much less black women, who were attending college at all. Right. Um, in addition to that, she's um, she was also, I think, the only woman um, and certainly one of the first black women to um, to attend and graduate from Fordham Law School. And she was she was actually married to a dentist. Yes. And so can you imagine her being married to a dentist with a son? She was intended to be some society mom. <laughs> and that just was not her. Um, that wasn't her cup of tea. Um and so I, I believe, if you'll recall, she um, she got on this prosecution team, actually prosecuting Lucky Luciano by pure happenstance, because her job as a prosecutor was just to prostitute the the women's crimes, which was largely prostitution. And every other mob boss in that day had been prosecuted for like tax evasion. And she discovered that it was Lucky Luciano who was actually prostituting women. And she convinced her boss, um, Dewey, at the time, she convinced him to prosecute Lucky Luciano for running this prostitution ring, which actually earned her a spot um, on this particular earned her a spot on this team. Um, and so thank you for that work. Is there anything you can highlight about that, about the work that you did and the work that she's engaged, that she was engaged in? What happened was she was working on women, as I think you mentioned what they call the women's court, which was a lot of, um, she was in the, she, actually she was the first black woman in the New York prosecutor's office too. And that's what she was doing. And she noted that, um, a lot of these prostitutes, they didn't have any money, but they had expensive lawyers. All right. And she's she's thinking this is kind of strange. And she kept seeing the, the names of the att- same attorneys and they were getting, you know, these they were prosecuted because they had expensive attorneys. And she's thinking this is really strange. Dewey, meanwhile, um, you know, didn't think that prostitution, nobody thought that the mob was involved in prostitution. That's not what they did. And Dewey was, he was a little bit politically correct at the time when she came to him and said, and this was before he was, she was on his team. She said, there's something going on here with the prostitutes. I think they're involved with the mob. He was reluctant to believe it because he said, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to get these women involved in this. These poor women, a lot of them are drug addicts. They don't have any money. I, I don't want to get them. I'm not going to do this. I'm, I'm going to look bad if I do this. Well, anyway, so she did this painstaking work and she linked, you know, prostitution to the mob. And that's what broke the case because, um, as you just said, they, they were these other other charges they, that, that, you know, they could not get the mob on, on serious crimes. So they got lucky on compulsory prostitution. So it, So not only was she the only black person on the team, she made the link. She was the one that, that said, you know, once that link to prostitution to the mob was made, that was it. I mean, I'm not saying it was any, you know, easy case, but that's what really clinched it for her. I mean, for him too. She laid the foundation for the case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she had a little bit of trouble. And then she was in the prosecutor's office. Then Dewey, who had just been named a special prosecutor, um, by the mayor, then he named her to the team because, you know, he, they saw that this was the link. He saw what she did. She became part of the team up until then. And one other quick thing, um, and, and you may already know this, um, one of the reasons she was named to, 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 the, you know, the prosecutor's office was, um, the Harlem riot of, I believe it was 35. She was named to a team. There was a, a major riot in Harlem. She was named to a team of people to try to find, to investigate this riot. What are the causes? What can we do to prevent another one? And as part of this team, she was kind of the secretary. She was kind of the one, you know, the quarterback. She took all the notes, got everything together. 
And she did such an outstanding job on this that she became kind of well-known and Mayor LaGuardia knew her and said, you know, this is somebody who's really smart, really, really effective. And so then she was named to the prosecutor's office because of that. So, and then from the prosecutor's office, she, um, you know, she, she became a member of the special of Dewey's team. So it was a step-by-step thing. You know, it wasn't that, you know, she graduates and, you know, is named to the prosecutor's office. It was what she did step-by-step that allowed her to do this. Marilyn, what was her feelings about feminism? Uh, obviously, she was a pioneer in both race and, and, and advancing causes for women, but yet she was prosecuting prostitutes. Did she feel conflicted at all? You know, I, that's a good question. And there's actually two answers to it. What one, I don't know if she did per se, but when they round, you know, they rounded up all these prostitutes one night, that was what Dewey did. It was this huge dragnet that nobody knew about, you know, cause he didn't want the word to get out. And, um, she was the one who like, you know, dealt with them, helped them, tried to make them feel comfortable, you know, I mean, and it makes sense, you know, all these men and she's, she's the woman. So I think she, she tried in that way to help things out, you know, but as far as, you know, quote unquote feminism, it was her mother who really, um, was in the suffrage movement. Uh, her mother did a lot with, with suffrage and her mother, I think might've been, you know, more of a quote unquote feminist. And I think she instilled this in Eunice and, and I'm not saying Eunice didn't, didn't agree with it, but, but her mother actually was active in fighting for the vote and Eunice who was young at the time, you know, she was born in 1899. Um, but she saw this and she, her mother was a role model for her, but, but, but yeah, I, I, that's a good question about the conflict. You know, you're prosecuting prostitutes, and then they become part of this huge team. So, so where does she stand? But I do think she they, they she did try at least in a in a way to help them while this was going on. While we're at it, why don't you dig in and tell us about her mother, who obviously is an amazing character? Can you give us some background on her? Yeah. Um, Addie Hunton, and I just want to say one thing before I forget, because I sometimes forget to say this, and um, Judge Byers, you, you brought this up, and I made a mental note to to um, say it. One of the things that Addie did is she really felt that it was important that history of women and Black people be written down, that I think she felt that things happen particularly to, to minorities and to women. And because of their stat, status, they're lost to history. So she was a writer. She wrote everything down. She wrote two books, and I'll just summarize them in a minute. So that, I think, was really important, and sometimes we forget about that. But, yeah, she she um, came from kind of a well-to-do family in, in Virginia, had a great education, you know, was very smart, and she um, meets William Hutton, you know, who's <laughs> who's another story which we'll get to. But anyway, ma- marries him. He was from Canada, and he he came down to Virginia, and um, she helps him. He he helped, and not only helped, he almost did it single handedly. Integrate the YMCA's, you know, it, you know, at the turn of the century. She did a lot with him, but also um, after he died, she wrote a book about his life and about what he did and the struggles he had with his job. And she also did a book about being on a team of women that went to France during World War One to help black soldiers. And that both books are really revealing. I mean, I have to say, especially if you're, you're a history buff, the, the um, book she wrote about going to France was really eye opening. Um, I, I wish I could have, we quoted it a little bit in our, in our book. I wish we could have quoted it more. Um, just some of the things these black soldiers went through and how they found that they, 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 the French treated them in a more sympathetic way than their own countrymen, you know, than Americans did as far as race, you know, and, and, and there was just, she, and she was very, she didn't write in an angry way or anything. She was just recording what went on, you know, and that's what I think makes it so compelling. It wasn't like, oh, this was an angry book. No, she was just simply, uh, you know, recording 
what went on when she was over there. But, but yeah, then she became, as, as her children grew, she became active in, as I said, a little bit of suffrage. She became active in the women's club movement, which, which was really, there hasn't been as much written about that as there could be. This was black and white women um, who, you know, got together and did a lot as far as educating the poor, as far as trying to get legislation passed. Remember, this was before women voted, so so women had very little power, very little political power. So this the, this movement was really was was pretty interesting. And Addie was a was quite a leader in it. I mean, that's you know, if you read any of her obituaries or anything, that that'll be almost first in there. So that was the story of of Addie, who was was a role model for. Um, Eunice. Marilyn, what would you say the impact or um, the relationship was between um, Eunice's dad and herself was? How did that help shape her? Yeah, that's interesting too. Um, Eunice's dad, um, who you know was born and raised in Canada because his father was you know, a, a former slave who, who purchased his freedom and moved to, to Canada. And um, her, her grandfather, Stanton, really valued education. I mean, it, you know, he became, actually, he became wealthy. He, he became a developer and they lived in a, in a little town called Chatham, which uh, um, became a home to a lot of former slaves. And it was this very tightly knit community where they, they valued the arts and education. So William, her father, was raised reading, you know, knowing what was going on in the world. And so in that way, he was like Addie. They both really valued education. They both thought that was the, the, the top thing in the world. They both valued family. Family was very important to Addie and to William. Um, and religion. They, they were both religious. Um, so in that way, I think William was a role model to Eunice. Now, with William's job, he was gone a lot. You know, he was traveling through the South. He was away a lot. So their personal relationship, it's just that while she was growing up, he just wasn't around much, you know. So, so that entered in their personal relationship. I mean, they certainly got along. It wasn't that they didn't. But I think he influenced her in the bigger picture the same way Addie did. You have to work hard. You have to be educated. You know, um, you have to know what's going on in the world around you. So that was his, I think, biggest contribution, you know, for her. And so in that way, he was also a role model to her, although not in the, you know, in the close personal way that Addie was. Did she have any relationship with her grandfather? No. Um, I, I just, in fact, I, I'm pretty sure he was, he either died or, or it was not possible. Okay. Um, in fact, William, and I don't want to get into this, but William loved Canada. And he all, and, and Addie says in her book, William also said, I'm going to take you to Canada someday to Addie. I'm going to take you there. I'm going to take you there. And it never happened. Talk about, if you would, uh, the estrangement between, or at least the strained relationship between Eunice and her brother, coming from the same family of activists. Yeah, and now that's interesting, and I, I, I want to have a disclaimer here, um, and I'll just get to this real fast too. We were in the we were in the middle of this book and had plans to interview. Um, Eunice's grandson, who's a professor of law at Yale. And I had contacted him about two or three years earlier. Anyway, the long, short, long story short, we were in the middle of this book and, uh, you know, writing it. And the grandson, Stephen, I read online, oh, I'm coming out with a biography of my grandmother, Eunice <laughs> Carter. This was in the middle of the whole thing. And anyway, so we're screaming and yelling. Um, and you know, right. <laughs> anyway, the, the, <laughs> the upshot was, um, his book came out two and a half years ago and it was very good. I, I, I will say it focused mostly on her personal relationship with her mother and, you know, he was, he's related to her. So there was a lot of family, personal family things, which helped us a lot in the book, but, 
our book was different. It was kind of the whole environment and, you know, that she grew up in and, and what was going on, a lot more on the, the um, trial. But what he did, too, was he wrote a lot about Eunice's brother, Alpheus, and his um, problems. And we do a little bit on Alpheus. I mean, we don't we don't focus on that. Um, but Alpheus, you know, was active um in the, in the Pan-African movement and international movement um, and was somewhat of a radical. I mean, you can, you know, read about him. He, he just, anybody in a, you know, there's different forms of a movement. He was a little bit of a radical, got arrested at one point, which pretty much ruined his life. And so when this happened, Addie, Addie and Eunice just, he was far too radical for them, I guess is, is one way of putting it. So they had their their relationship was at arm's length, and after he got arrested, um, Eunice was frankly she was really upset, and she thought you know he, she might, he might be affecting her career because of what happened. It was in the newspapers, but um, interesting guy. Um, his wife, Alpheus's wife, wrote a memoir about him, which I read that that was really interesting too, and it's kind of sad. I mean, you know, this another another brilliant person, you know, and it's just, you know, the Cold War was going on. He, you know, communism was hated. He was accused of being a communist um, because of his radical views. So that's, that's the situation with her brother. And I think they were essentially estranged, you know, during the last years of both their lives. Now, did her brother have children and what kind of relationship um, does his children, if any, have with her children? Or grandchildren? Um, yes, the brother did, but it's what I. It's funny because your your question has just triggered something in me. Um, so Eunice's son, Eunice had one son, um, and Eunice's son actually actually did have did try to have a relationship with Alpheus, and um, so. And Eunice's son, of course, had a son, and that's Stephen, Stephen who wrote wrote the book. So I think one of the reasons that Stephen wrote the book and focused a lot on on Alpheus was because his father, um, you know, wanted a relationship with him. So, so you know, you have these generations, you know, these generations going on, and I'm trying to think, I, you know, I'm looking at my notes here and trying to find a, a family tree, but Eunice's son... All right. In keeping with the family, was an attorney when that made Eunice very proud. Eunice's son was also a social justice leader and also was um, a, a, a university president. He was a president. I guess he was the first president of the University of the District of Columbia. So, you know, we're, we've got this family. So we have Eunice, who's the attorney. We've got this only son who's an attorney and a university president. And then um, Eunice's son, I think, had four or five children. So, so Stephen has several brothers and sisters. Um, and then Stephen is an attorney. And of course, he's a, a law professor at Yale. So, you know, once again, we've got this family and, you know, their, their beliefs and their focus on education, you could just see how it, it's passed on, you know, and, and from my point of view, starting with Eunice's grandfather. Marilyn, circle back to to Eunice now and let's let's talk a little bit about what happened after the Luciano trial. You know, obviously she had a a notable presence in that in 1936, but her career certainly was not over. <clears throat> no. Um she she stayed in the uh, prosecutor's office, I believe, for nine or ten years, and then she she went into private practice for a while. But the you know she died at age seventy one. I, I think the last I don't know twenty fifteen um, years of her life, they weren't they weren't focused on private practice per se, but they were focused on her on things like social justice. She she was a legal advisor to the United Nations. She was a legal advisor to several. Um, you know, groups. She, I, I have a, you know, I, I have a tape of an interview that she did with, believe it or not, Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, just because of all, all the work that she did. So, 
the the ten eight or ten years in the prosecutor's office, then a couple years as in private practice. But most of the rest of her life was just focused on these social justice causes. And then and she also became I don't want to say well known, but but then she achieved some kind of you know fame during those last couple of years. Nat- National Council of Negro Women was a really um, a group that that accomplished a lot. She was very, very, very active in that group. In addition to being their legal advisor, she also served on their board. Um, I looked at the records from that organization that are in, outside of Washington, and you can just see that she spent a lot of time on that. Now, one one interesting point that I tried to nail down and, and had s- some success, you know, her, what was her relationship with Dewey, you know, right. after this? Because most, many people know, you know, this is just made Dewey's career. Right. I mean, he, he, you know, he was the gangbuster and launched his political career, you know, um, three three time governor of New York, almost became president. Um, and so the question is, so what, so what was her relationship with him? And, and, and I think, you know, she she um, participated, she, you know, she she helped him get, you know, in his, in his first quest for governor. She helped campaign for him. Um, after that, I think they remained friends, but they, they weren't particularly close. Now, one interesting thing that Stephen had in his book that I hadn't been able to, to nail down, he said she want, when he was governor, when, when Dewey was governor, she wanted a, a certain judgeship. And Dewey gave it to, to a black person who was in, in the prosecutor's office, you know, a, a black, another black person. And um, I found a letter from... Um, Eunice in Dewey's paper saying, oh, that was a great choice. He's a really a good guy. You know, congratulations. That was a great choice. Yet Stephen says in his book that she was really disappointed that she wanted this judgeship or, or another judgeship. And, and he feels that in that way, Dewey let her down. Um, so I don't know. You know, um, she certainly didn't indicate it in anything that I found, but 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 this is what Stephen said. So, you know, Dewey was the, the consummate um, politico. He was a pretty fascinating character yeah. in his own right. Um, I found out a lot about Dewey. He was able to manipulate the media. He was able to man- manipulate editors and you know, into not covering, he didn't want any of the investigation covered into the mob until it was done. So he kind of um, flattered um, editors and publishers and said, you know, we can't get anything done with, with under a spotlight. And they believed him and they said, fine, we won't give you much coverage then. And I hesitate to say this with two lawyers, but there were some kind (laughs) of shady legal practices that, you know, of Dewey during this trial that we, we talk about a little bit. Um, and the newspapers did not cover them. There, there were some kind of shady wiretap. There were some wiretapping issues <laughs> <laughs> done that um, I guess they kind of, you know, everybody looked the other way, you know, with Dewey and his wiretapping. Um, then there was something called the, and you, I don't know, you guys may know what this is, a blue ribbon jury um, what happened was Dewey decided, you know, what they what they called the blue ribbon jury. We want people on the jury who are who have served on juries before, who are professional people, who are very smart people. That's who we want on our jury, and um, that's what he got. You know, so of course later on, you know, a blue ribbon jury. What what the heck is that? That you know that's. <laughs> kind of unconstitutional you know your own Um, jury yeah (laughs) i know that's that really is like cherry picking yeah that's exactly so so that was later on that was found to be illegal all right but but that's what dewey had he he bragged about his blue ribbon jury you know and so the newspapers as far as we know, no one ever wrote like, what are you doing with this jury? You know, <laughs> I mean, nobody ever said a word about that during it. So there were, there were some shady things legally that came out later. The prostitutes who, who suppose, you know, who, who, you know, the, the case hinged on them. They re, many of them recanted after this was all over and done. Um, they said, oh, you know, they, they, we were told that, you know, we'd be in jail forever unless we said this, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So th- this was never covered in the papers, 
It just never was. So Dewey was, was pretty clever. Um, he, he was, you know, he knew about branding. You know, we talk about branding today. People really didn't know who Lucky Luciano was before Dewey came on the scene because he purposely, he, he, he kept a low profile. He didn't want to be famous. Well, Dewey sees this guy and he's in charge and he's kind of a handsome, you know, craggy looking guy, <laughs> Luciano, but handsome. You know, dressed in like thousand dollar suits, thousand dollars then. Right. (laughs) They'd be like four thousand dollar suits now. Um, Lived in the Waldorf Astoria in in a beautiful suite. So Louis, or so Dewey took one look at this guy and said, "He's perfect as a scapegoat." You know, so he he put put him front and center, and he you know he knew he knew I need the I need the face of the mob. I need somebody to you know say this is this is what what's going on here, and so he did, and so that's that's really how Lucky Luciano became famous. I mean, because um, he he was made famous by by Tom's Dewey. Dewey was extremely extremely smart. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands. And this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud. To make it clear. Make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Gail, I'd be interested in hearing what you think about Eunice's life, because knowing what I know about your career, um, you've sort of mirrored a lot of what she did, but a century later. Indeed, indeed. And, you know, it's so, um, it's so amazing what she was able to accomplish at the point that she was dropped into history. Um, I too um, have a background as a prosecutor, um, having prosecuted some extremely serious cases. And, you know, one thing that you said, Marilyn, that sort of takes me back to um, something that Eunice experienced. And I can kind of understand, I think, the the thinking that she portrayed at the time was um, as she had spent this time as a prosecutor and she had worked hard for Dewey. And if I recall, she even worked really hard on his presidential campaign. And so I think that it's important um, not only that you work for someone that you believe in and that you really want to help, but also it's a demonstration of loyalty and so it would seem to me that she was working to show those things and to really be as tangibly supportive as she could. And I think to the extent that that many of us could in, in our respective positions when we were able to and ethically could, we did those things. And I think what you describe as her behavior was what she thought that she could and that she didn't want her career to just sort of plateau as a prosecutor, but she clearly demonstrated her skill set, her ability, her temperament, and knew that the person that she was working with, that she was helping, um, the person that she'd shown faith in could 
not only see those things, but was in a position to help her to get to a different level in her career by um, assisting her and becoming a jurist, which is something that she had not only earned, but at that time for a Black woman would require her to be ushered in by someone who didn't look like her. And that it was highly, highly unlikely that she, as a Black woman, would ascend to the bench without, again, someone, and more likely than not, a white male, to really, really take her by the hands and take her to that next level. And when presented with that opportunity to do so, uh, that that they elected not to for whatever that reason, um, and it's actually sort of mimics a lot what a lot of what Black women still feel today, and that we still, in the face of that, we demonstrate a. It's okay, you know what, you know we we still have to publicly sanction whatever the choice or the behavior is, even when it's not in our favor, while going home to our family and finding the safe space to say where we're disappointed and that we didn't agree. And that, yeah, that felt like a slap in the face. And so to the extent that you have, you may have some communication to to Dewey that says, hey, listen, you know, I think you made a great choice. That was fine. I think that more likely than not was the professional Eunice. While to her grandson and to her family, she was actually able to show herself and show her heart and be really candid about the disappointment that she felt, the hurt that she felt. Because quite honestly, if you think about it, how many other high-ranking white men in her circle really had the depth of knowledge of her skill set and were going to place faith in her abilities such that she'd really be able to realize that dream? And how many years in the profession did she really have that she would be able to get to that level in her profession? without feeling like she had to keep hitting the reset button and starting over and proving and proving and reproving herself over and over again. It's particularly disappointing. And I, I would submit that that's, there's not a whole lot of difference between that time in history and what happens to, to women right now, and particularly you know, women of color who don't have the ready access to those higher rungs or the ladder. Um, and so I, I, I applaud her for the work that she did do, because if I'm correct, there came a time when she actually gained a seat on, I think one of the UN committees, if I'm correct, um, when I, because your work inspired me to read more about her. And so that's how I found these nuggets of information. Yeah. Yeah, you, I think you, you know, you really captured her, at least from what I could tell. I mean, first of all, you're right. She had this loyalty, incredible loyalty to Dewey. And I agree with you. I can't, you know, she wrote that nice note, but I, I, you know, I can't imagine she wasn't disappointed that he didn't appoint her to a higher position. Um, and I will tell you, you know, taking it into today, I'm certain, you know, not an attorney, but I, um, I wrote something, it's, I'll, I'll send it to you. It's actually on the Fordham University Press, their blog. I wrote a, I wrote a blog post for them. It's a little story. And it's about how women attorneys today, or as of census, you know, numbers from three years ago, um, are making less than their male counterparts, you know, earning less than their male counterparts. And their numbers are growing, but they're still not equal to, to but, but so, so a lot of this, yes, it's still going on unbelievably. Um, she was, very, I can't, you know, just feeling like I know her a little bit. I can't imagine her not being loyal to Dewey, no matter what, you know. Um, but I agree with you. She probably was hurt. She probably knew in her heart, you know, I'm as good or better than this person who got the job, you know, this other person. Um, so, and that was her, her, I think her personality was pretty low key. You know, that's, that's the way she was. 
So, yeah, I, I think, yes, you absolutely got her from, from what I could tell. And yes, it certainly is appropriate for today. How many years later, you know, I mean, we've made a lot of progress and there's no question, but we've got a lot more to, to do. And I would suspect, you know, as a function of taste and professionalism, the right thing to do um, from her lens and then and now would would have been to to send a letter um, saying that, you know, I, I'm not here to undermine your choice or your decision, um, but rather to respect and to celebrate the decision you've made because the the choice that you've made is yours. It's, I don't know a circumstance or a situation where an incendiary letter is going to cause someone to not only change their mind, but to choose you. Yeah. And I think that she was a savvy enough woman and a professional, a consummate professional, such that she understood that. Yeah. And let's also be very candid. And that in that time in history, no matter how good your work was and how well you had done it, just about anything could have gotten you fired. Yes. And so yes. there I don't I could also bet that she felt she had no license to be candid or open or straightforward or very forthright. And there was no benefit to that either. She could have been relegated to even lower tiered work than what she had done, notwithstanding the the wonderful work products that she had produced up until that point. It's not as if she had earned some permanent status as even a prosecutor. And so calculating the risk of not being magnanimous, certainly it was more so in her better interest to memorialize something that was more flattering than not for a host of reasons. Oh, I, I agree with you. And and also other work I've done in, in Tom, and I've been on your show before, um, w- women journalists, from, you know, before the women were commonly journalists back in the forties and fifties, same thing. You know, it's like they have to walk this line. They have to be very careful. You know, um, I, I guess I better not say this or I'd like to say this, but I can't. And it, it is, it's a line, you know, you don't want to be too passive on the other hand, if you, you know, you, you can't be too much of a squeaky wheel, you know, back then. So I absolutely, I absolutely agree. Marilyn's last biography was on Pauline Frederick, the journalistic pioneer uh, female reporter that emerged during that time period. One more question for you, Marilyn, before we let you go. And, and that is, you know, we've talked a lot about her life, a lot about Eunice uh, Carter's uh, accomplishments how did she place race in her life? Did she see herself as a racial pioneer? Uh, was race secondary to everything that she was doing, or was it primary to what she was doing? Good question. In fact, I'm glad you asked it because I, I made a note before to make sure to, to bring this up. Um, I, I don't know if it was primary or secondary. It was very important. In fact, um, when she was oh, in her thirties, I guess she 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 actually was active in the Harlem Renaissance. She was a right she was a writer. I mean, she she was a known figure in the Harlem Renaissance. Um, she wrote for a lot of publications during the era. Um, not about law. She she did some fiction. She did some book reviews, and and, and there were many more publications um, geared geared toward people of color back then than there are now. So she had a lot of outlets for her work. And she wrote at one point, and I have it, I think I, I have a quote at the beginning of the book. She wrote about the value of role models um, for underrepresented groups. And, and she was young when she wrote this. She said, it's really important to be a role model if you can, because people of accomplishment 
serve as beacons. And without those people to look up to, you know, you will never get anywhere. And, I, and, and it was very eloquent. I'm afraid I'm not doing it justice, but it was so eloquent that I, I isolated it as a quote to put in the book. Um, and I thought it was not just so true and eloquent, but it was also came from someone so young. It, I read this quote and I thought, this is almost like something an older person would right. say after you know years of living and decades of living. No, she was young. And, and, it, and that was, you know, she said, it's so, so important. And it's so important to, um, you know, in, in some ways to tell people of your accomplishments because you're, you are the one that, you know, that they look up to. So. I'm going to give uh, Judge Byers the last word, but before I do, I want to remind everybody the book is Eunice Hunton, H-U-N-T-O-N, Eunice Hunton Carter, A Lifelong Fight for Social Justice. It's published by Fordham University Press. It will be out in April of 2021. But it is available now for pre-order from Fordham Press, also from Amazon.com, and from BarnesandNoble.com. Judge? And my last words are very, very short. And I really just want to say to you, Marilyn, thank you so much for elevating the life and history of Eunice Hunton Carter um, so that she too can share the stage and pantheon of greatness with so many other great Black Americans who have helped to shape the wonderful history of this country and have added so much value to our lives. For the time and effort and energy that you have put into this work, um, I can tell anyone that it is so worth it to um, make sure that they get their hands on your work so that they too can appreciate her life and her contribution as we've had an opportunity to share and appreciate a conversation with you today. Thank you. Thanks, Judge Byers. And I really appreciate your comments too. I found them very interesting. Thanks as usual, Tom. No problem. <laughs> we'll talk again soon. And again, the book is Eunice Hunton Carter, A Lifelong Fight for Social Justice by Fordham University Press, out April 2021. But pre-order now through Fordham Press, Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Today, Judge Gail Byers and I have been talking with Marilyn Greenwald, the co-author of a new book coming out in April, The Biography of Eunice Hunton Carter. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. 